All right. Well, uh, you, you have heard from, from Frank's prayer um, that I have the, the joy of being able to, an opportunity to be able to bring the message today. Um, unfortunately, it's because Pastor Johnny has taken ill, but you know, thank God and praise God um, that, that he's not uh, having to shoulder this at a time when you know, he, he's under the weather and needs to be recovering and recuperating. So uh, we praise God for, uh, you know, being all on the same team, you know, and, and, and God being able to show up and still uh, make his word uh, go forth and do what it needs to do, um, no matter the situation. So with that, um, let me open us with, with giving you a sense for, for where we're going to go today with scripture and the scripture. Um, it's, an, it's an old familiar passage um, that you probably have learned as a child if you were raised in church, in children's church or Sunday school. And it's the first chapter of Daniel, the book of Daniel, um, the prophet. And this is the story in chapter one of him as, as a young boy uh, before he's you know, a full-grown adult um, doing all the miraculous things that the prophet of God does. Uh, God was working with him very early on. Um, and as a child, you're at least, you know, hearing this story, I remember it from Children's Church as well, um, because it's so perfect to tell in Children's Church in Sunday school to children and young people, because Daniel himself was uh, a young person at this time and how God was working. We, we typically sort of remember and take this story in, in a very sanitized form, because uh, it's delivered to, to kids in Sunday school. Um, and that is all good stuff. It absolutely is. It sticks with us and we, we can glean a lot from it. I want us to look at it today, though, and, and try to appreciate a bit of the context, maybe in a less sanitized form, though, because I do believe that uh, even that story, which is so uh, <laughs> such, a, such a wonderful story for, for young people, um, it has a lot to offer for us um, today, particularly as we navigate changing society and, and, and the things out there that, that look like they're a real threat and antithetical to everything that God would stand for. Um, and we navigate that and our, our children navigate that and our grandchildren are, are gonna navigate these, these waters um, and it can cause us some consternation. Uh, but as we look at the story of Daniel, we can see that, you know what, we can really stay anchored. Uh, we don't have to fret in some ways or in very clear ways, you know, uh, a godly life and a life in Christ was really fashioned and made within the context of environments and societies that really ran contrary to the principles of God. Um, and that's what it actually meant in terms of the context to actually live a life in Christ and to live a godly life uh, and how God uses us in those contexts to actually be a light and, and draw people to him. And so it doesn't come without a cost, of course, um, and, and I want us to maybe be able to look at this in some new ways that we may not have necessarily appreciated um, if we sort of remember it back from when we were kids. So we'll be looking at the whole chapter, Daniel 1, 1 through 21. The sermon title is What's in Your Bag? What's in Your Bag? Um, and I'll explain all that with this first introduction. Hopefully it'll make sense. Um, so let me, let me start with a very real um, life example. Um, that will launch us into the scripture today. So there is a, um, there's a book um, called All That She Carried that just came out, um, and it's focused around 
this bag called Ashley's Sack. Um, Ashley's Sack. And let me give you a sense as to what this is about. So in 2007, maybe 15, 16 years ago in Nashville, Tennessee, a mother of three was um, doing some shopping at a local flea market. And typically she would supplement her family's income by buying some items from flea markets, figuring out you know, their value and then selling them on eBay. And that's how she would earn a little bit of money on the side to support her family. And so this lady was um, once again at a flea market and she was looking through a bin of old fabrics. Um, and so she was picking some out that she might you know, be able to sell and, and maybe turn into something and sell it on eBay. And she ran across this old sack cloth and she thought, well, this, this is pretty old looking. This may be worth something. So she grabbed it and put it in with the other items that she was buying. And, you know, she paid $20 for the whole lot, uh, took it home. And she began to examine this, this sack cloth that was a part of the fabrics that she had purchased. Um, and the sack cloth was about the size of a large purse, but it looked very old. Um, and so before she, you know, did anything with it, she thought, you know, wisely, well, let me get this checked out. This actually could be pretty special. Um, and so she had somebody take, uh, take a look at it who actually was a specialist. Um, and it was actually found to be very old. Um, and so this sack cloth was made in the 1840s. And what was particularly notable about it was it was made from the first industrial sewing machines. And so they could tell by the stitching, this was made at a time when uh, those sewing machines were new. Um, they, they were able to turn out these types of, of sacks and these were sacks that people would typically use to, to carry some of the food staples of that day, like flour and seeds of sort. Uh, so it, was one, it wasn't a huge sack, but it was one that was from a, uh, an older time and had some value. But what really caught her eye though, even though as special as that was, um, what really caught her eye was there were 10 lines of an embroidered message that was added to this sack clearly some years later. Um, and so the sack itself was from the 1840s, but this message that had been embroidered on it by somebody was embroidered in the year 1921. And, and how do we know that? Because here is what the message actually said that was embroidered on this sack. It read, my great grandmother Rose, mother of Ashley, gave her this sack when she was sold at age nine in South Carolina. It held a tattered dress, three handfuls of pecans, a braid of Rose's hair. Told her it'd be filled with my love always. She never saw her again. Ashley is my grandmother. And then it was signed in embroidery, Ruth Middleton, 1921. This is how she knew that this sack was particularly special. And so this kicked off this genealogical mystery for her in terms of trying to figure out who is the person and who is the family that this came from and whatever became of this, this Ashley who was sold off in slavery at age nine and, and whatever became of her mother, Rose. And so through a lot of work and through a lot of research, uh, what was uncovered was a, a really painful story, but unfortunately very common uh, in the antebellum South in the slavery days where it was at the death of a particular slave owner his debts had to be settled and had to be settled right away. And so what that meant was the enslaved people on his plantation would have to be sold. And so he was actually, they were actually gonna sell this nine-year-old enslaved girl away from her mother off to the highest bidder at the slave auction. And so this news, you know, hit of course, you know, like a bombshell to, to obviously the, the mother, 
the enslaved mother, uh, but this mother only had minutes to take one last look at her child upon hearing this news, you know, and, and she only had minutes to somehow pull together, you know, a, a, a sack, um, an emergency sack, you know, that's gonna, you know, give her child something for the road ahead. And the road ahead, of course, really contain all the horrors that lie ahead for, for a young girl who would grow into womanhood under the eye of a slaveholder and, and all that that means. Um, and so Ashley Sack represented all of that. Ashley was the young girl. Um, the mother Rose prepared it and gave it to her um, in the last few minutes that she had. She never saw her again, um, but that sack somehow has survived. And that sack now known as Ashley Sack hangs in the Smithsonian Museum Washington, D.C., um, and is the subject of the book, All That She Carried. And so if we can just then imagine for a bit what it would be like for us if we ourselves knew that our child within a few minutes would be taken from us forever and forced into a world that we would never wish on our worst enemies. Right? And, and we, we only have a few moments with our child. We only have a few moments to, to try to prepare them for all the things that are going to befall them. Um, and we know the things that are going to befall them are not wonderful things. Um, and if you, if you don't have children or that, that's a, a stretch, well, remember when you were the child, um, remember yourself back at age nine or a young person, what would you have needed if you were then taken away from your loved ones, never to see them again, um, and forced into this world that would be very, very different that you would have to navigate? I want us to think about that because that is exactly what Daniel's situation was. And so let's take a look at this very familiar passage, um, but keep this lens on as we read through it in terms of somebody, a young person who is about to be taken away forever from their loved ones, never to see them again, forced into a world that is very different, that runs very antithetical to what one's parents and community would ever wish for them. Um, and, and they have just a few moments you know, to, to give them something that they need or what will they need you know, that will last them the rest of their life, you know, on this journey. Let's look at J Daniel chapter one. It reads, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King, of ne King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power, as well as some of the vessels of the house of God. These he brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace master, Ashpenaz, to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men, without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine. They were to be educated for three years so that at the end of the time, they could be stationed in the king's court. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the royal rations of food and wine, so he asked the palace master to allow him not to defile himself. Now God allowed Daniel to receive favor and compassion from the palace master. Now the palace master said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king. He has appointed your food and, and your drink, 
if he should see you in poorer condition than the other young men of your own age, you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel asked the guard whom the palace master had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. You can then compare our appearance with the appearance of the young men who eat the royal rations and deal with your servants according to what you observe. So he agreed to this proposal and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was observed that they appeared better and fatter than all the young men who had been eating the royal rations. So the guard continued to withdraw their royal rations and wine that they were to drink and give them vegetables. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and skill in every aspect of literature and wisdom. Daniel also had insight into all visions and dreams. At the end of time, uh, at the end of the time that the king had set for them to be brought in, the palace master brought them into the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among them, and among them all, no one was found to compare with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they were stationed in the king's court. In every matter of wisdom and understanding concerning which the king inquired of them, he found them to be 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. Very familiar story, very familiar passage. Let's though appreciate a, something about the historical context though that can sort of unpack this a bit and help us to appreciate some aspects of it that, that might be a little bit more difficult to, to sort of uh, uh, see initially, but, but I do believe are there. So the historical context of, of this passage is, is this. I'm gonna start the year before this occurred in, in the year 606 BC. The year before Daniel was taken captive, the Pharaoh of Egypt actually came up from Africa to attack Babylonia, which is in present day Iraq. And to do so, they come up through the Sinai Peninsula where Judah and Israel are actually located and into the area of the Babylonian empire and they wage this attack. Well, at the time, Nebuchadnezzar, who was there in, in Babylonia, he was not yet the king, he was the prince. And as a prince, he had command of an army then that responded to this attack from Egypt. And he was quite successful in, in fending off the Egyptian attack. So successful that Egypt was routed um, and they actually retreated and they went south back into Africa. But Nebuchadnezzar actually pursued them with his army all the way south to the area of Judah and Israel. So, so they pass into the Sinai Peninsula and, and this is what brings Nebuchadnezzar then into the area where Judah, where God's people actually are. Now, what was interesting or what, why, why then Nebuchadnezzar's attention then turned to Judah, which ultimately led to an attack on Judah, was because Judah was actually aligned with Egypt. So there, what, what is really important to understand about that background is basically how God has always dealt with his people, the people of Israel and Judah. Back when they first became a nation, God set up this covenant with them through Moses that said, if you then obey my commandments, you live according to the law, the Torah that he gave them through Moses, then God is going to bless them. The land was a part of their inheritance in which they were living. God would protect them from invaders and attackers. God would prosper them in the land. This was a part of the blessing that came along if they actually followed God's commandments and held fast to God. The flip side of that, was if they did evil, if they drifted away from God, then 
God would actually have to get their attention. And how he would get their attention often is he would withdraw his hand from them. Calamity would come. They would be attacked from the nations around them. And they would be conquered and often sent into exile, meaning taken captive and taken away into other lands. And so this was basically a back and forth process. And over the years and over many years, unfortunately, Israel, Judah, they actually rebelled quite often against the Lord. And so often they were actually conquered and attacked. But this was God's way of getting their attention, because after they were conquered and taken into slavery, often then they would cry out to God and turn back to God, and he would rescue them and bring them home. So this is the situation then that precedes or that sort of sets up the context that we're actually looking at in the passage. So the king of Judah had, as, as the, the book of Kings actually tells us, Jehoiakim, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sense of two ways, typically. Whenever Israel and Judah went off course, typically it was for two reasons. One, they treated people badly, particularly poor people, particularly the vulnerable people. Um, and they typically treated them badly because of greed. Um, and so that was always something that the prophets were chastising the kings about when that would happen. The other factor was idolatry. And so over time, typically what would happen and what would happen too often, unfortunately, is Israel and Judah, they would actually start to incorporate into their worship the worship of other gods, the gods of the people around them, the idols. And, and particularly because this was the land of Canaan, there were, there were two main gods that they kept falling prey to in, in this way. Um, one of these gods we, we probably recall because the name Baal comes up so much in scripture. And Baal was this um, Canaanite god of the weather. The other god was actually a goddess. The other idol was a goddess uh, named Asherah. And Asherah was this goddess of fertility. And these two gods had a lot to do with the things that were really important to anybody who lived in an agrarian farming society, because Baal was the god of weather, people in a farming society actually depended on things like rain and good weather for their crops to be produced. And if there were no crops because the weather was bad and the rain didn't come, people starved. So it's really, really important that they actually had rain and good weather in order to live and survive. Also in an agrarian society, livestock is very important. And Livestock being able to reproduce was a very important thing, whether it was for food or whether it was for clothing. Reproducing livestock and the animals having babies was very, very important. Therefore, the goddess Asherah, being the goddess of fertility, was a really important god for the people around Israel and Judah at that time. And any time, uh, and this is even true today, where there are really important vital resources that we really need and depend on for our livelihood and even our survival, but those resources are either scarce or they're out of our control and they happen sporadically. There's a real temptation then in terms of feeling anxious and, and feeling like we may be living precariously on things that are really important, but that we don't control. That is a hard thing for anybody today and even back then to be able to do because so much depended on those things. And what people tend to do psychologically with that is it's very uncomfortable to be out of control of the things that are very important that you need. So we will figure out ways to, to almost create an illusion of control. And one of the pathways to that illusion of control is we'll posit, well, then if, if the rain is so important for us to have, Let's posit this rain god who has control over the rain, 
And then we'll figure out some way to develop a special relationship with this rain god so that we can leverage them. And therefore, it seems like we almost have some control in this, this big puzzle that, that really is out of our hands. So if you follow what I'm saying with this, it's really a way to say, well, if we just serve the rain god and do the dances just right, or if we do the sacrifices to the rain god just right, maybe the rain god will be pleased with us and respond and grant us the rain that we actually need. So if there's a drought, instead of us being distraught and there's nothing that we can do because it's completely out of our control, we'll do the rain dance. We'll, we'll at least do something that we think can actually get us closer and, and leverage that rain actually coming our way. Complete fabrication, by the way, but this is, this is not unusual. Um, if we think about the same dynamic today and we think about things like a prosperity gospel, I think that fits that exact same pattern. So we don't typically need to think of, of people in the ancient days as somehow unlearned and, and just unwise that they would go for ideas like that. We go for it today. And so we've got people who, who depend on uh, resources, money, paychecks. You know, it, it's our livelihood. We're not out there farming anymore. So we don't grow our own food. We depend on having to go and buy it and, and you know, pay for rent for places to live. And if we miss a paycheck or two, or if the, the market turns down and we, we don't have a job, we're probably two or three weeks from being homeless. And that, that's probably the majority of people at this point in terms of we miss one or two paychecks, we have a real problem. Where does the food come from? Where does the rent come from? And so when we live that precariously in desperate times, like we have actually seen over the past few years, of course, then there is this pull for somebody to come along and say, you know what, you can develop a special relationship with the God who has control over all the money, and if you just name it and claim it in faith, if you just believe and don't doubt, if you just do this and do that and sow a seed in this way and sow a tithe in this way, somehow that unlocks this equation and God's favor is going to be shown on you by basically blessing you with wealth. And that's going to be the end of all of your problems as you think you know it, because you figured out how to unlock this sort of mystery and God is going to sort of bless you with all these things if you just do the right things. That is the exact same thing as what we observe with Israel and Judah back in the ancient days when it comes to the idol worship. And so it's just a new version of a very old, well-worn path called idolatry, and we see it today. And this is the context then that was going on in this scripture that we're actually looking at. Judah, unfortunately, had incorporated some of this worship. And so it was starting then to get God's ire, and as a part of the judgment, because God warned them, if you turn away from me and you worship idols, then that judgment is going to come. So here we now have Nebuchadnezzar in their region. And so Nebuchadnezzar attacks Judah, according to God's judgment, as God actually said. And so what we actually then see, while God has spared and protected Israel and Judah for, for those seasons when they actually were obedient. This is one time where because it's God's judgment, the scripture actually says God gave Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's power. So it was God then who then caused this fall of Judah as a result of the disobedience of Judah, the disobedience of the people. Nebuchadnezzar, at this time, was still a prince. What typically would happen when there was a conquering of people from the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, 
who, who the Babylonians and the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar was Chaldean, but the Chaldeans actually ruled Babylonia. So they were actually the people in power of Babylonia. So I'll use them interchangeably. What their strategy was when they actually would conquer people is they would then send them in, into exile. They would completely depopulate their major cities and they would send thousands and thousands of people and disperse them into the Babylonian empire so that they would be away from their culture and custom and languages. They would be sort of immersed in this new custom and culture and language. They would be serving, they would be enslaved and they would serve Babylon in some way and Babylonia in some ways, um, but they would never be allowed to return to their country of origin. They would, they would live and die there. They would have children there and they, those children and those children's children and those successive generations would be raised up in a Babylonian context, totally forgetting their original language, custom, identities, so that basically they were absorbed into the Babylonian population. Within one or two generations, typically, people would be completely absorbed and they would become totally Babylonian and have no recollection of their original identities. And this was, this was the, the, the political and military strategy of conquest when it comes to how, how the Babylonians practice exile. That was the intent, but what happened upon the capture and, and the sacking of Judah, something unusual happened that we only know from, from the Babylonian records. Nebuchadnezzar the prince at that time got news that his father the king had died. So he had to stop everything that he was doing in that conquest, which was looting Judah at that point, get back in his chariot and get home as quickly as possible in order to secure his place on the throne as king before one of his siblings did that. And so what we have in the Babylonian record is it took Nebuchadnezzar only two weeks to travel the 500 miles from Judah back home to Babylonia in order to secure his throne. And that, that's actually quite noticeable. Notable, 500 miles in just two weeks in that time what was like a, a Learjet today. Uh, so he covered it in record time. But what that actually meant was he didn't have time to then take captive 10,000 people. What he only had time for was he could take some of the treasures of Judah, which is why he only took some of the vessels from the temple and put them in his treasury. He took some of the boys of nobility, educated, handsome, the future leaders. He didn't take 10,000 people. He only took choice people, some people, because of the haste of the moment given the passing of his father. He took Jehoiakim, but then he returned the king of Judah back to Judah and set him up basically as a servant who his job was then to basically collect tribute so that he could pay that tribute to Nebuchadnezzar year after year after year. But at that point, Judah was subjugated. And so that first wave of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylonia coming into Judah resulted in just a few people, just a handful of people being taken into exile. And that was Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was, that was their sort of lot. They were the first people sort of taken away. But what that then meant is they were snatched away from everybody else. They said goodbye to their mother and their father and their family members, uh, and they were never to see them again. So now we're talking about, you know, this, this is the part of the story that we don't necessarily appreciate they're not all going into captivity together. They're just taking these young boys. They're just taking a few of them. And so like Ashley's bag, these families are basically, they, they've got a few moments and they see their young men taken away forever and they'll never see them again. 
They're going to be introduced into a very different world and the way that the Babylonians actually practiced their exile, the, the intent was to absorb them into the culture, which meant it was a brainwashing program that they were going to do. They did not take the older people who were actually solid in who they were and their identity and their culture. They took the young people who had plenty of promise, the future leaders of tomorrow, but they could still be shaped with the intent of teaching them all their literature, teaching them all their language. That was what this was about. So Daniel and his friends were exiled virtually alone, led off virtually alone, never to see anybody else again. And then completely immersed in this culture of the Chaldeans. No other Jews or Jewish enclaves were there. So at the end of a day of, of, of intensive three-year training and, and intensive reprogramming, they couldn't go home at night and then see people who, who could remind them of who they were and their identity. They were surrounded by the Chaldeans. So Moses had his mother. Remember, even though Moses went through this royal education in Egypt, but Moses came home to his mother each night. Um, and then Moses also had you know, the, the other Hebrew people who were st still serving as slaves in, in the community. And so he was constantly around them. They, they didn't have any of that. It was just them and this completely new culture, which really often was antithetical to everything that they actually were accustomed to in terms of the type of culture that God had set up through the Torah. These four young men, given their upbringing, Given the reality of what was going on with Judah at the time, remember, idolatry had sort of permeated uh, Judah enough so that God would bring judgment. These young men probably, I would venture, were not like the rest in terms of they probably did not participate in the idolatry and the worship that was going on in, in uh, the rest of, of the community. Um, because, of what the, because of the particular stand that they took once they got into Babylon, and I think it's just very interesting. And I think not interesting, but this is probably definitely God's hand that even though it was something horrible like an exile that happened to uh, a group of young men who seem probably quite innocent, but it happened to these particular four young men. These particular four young men, Nebuchadnezzar chose these particular four young men who actually had internalized some things and had not given over to the idolatry in some ways. And so when we think about then what did these four young men have to help them on the rest of their lives and to explain what we would then read later on in the book of Daniel in terms of, of what God would use them to do, they didn't have the Torah to read from because that was left behind. They didn't have their worship in their community. That was all left behind. They were just barely old enough. They, they might've been young teenagers at the oldest at the time. So still form, forming in their identity. But what they did have, what they already had in their bag, I would say it that way, was they had an awareness and a knowledge of God through the Torah. They had basically, even though the Torah wasn't there, it was, it was sort of written on their hearts already. And this is what then allowed them to stand firm when they were in Judah and the idolatry was coming in. But this is really what allowed them to stand firm in some really bold ways when they were now immersed and indoctrinated in a culture that was very, very different and even antithetical to the principles of God. All by God's design. All by God's design. So the book of Daniel shows how God ultimately expresses God's truths, not in Judah, 
but actually through a Babylonian culture and context through his people. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego became basically lights within the context of Babylonia for all the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar to actually see God show himself forward through their culture and through their context. And the, the point that I think is an important one here is the culture, the new culture, wasn't actually the problem. Note that what we read, Daniel and, and his friends, they did not resist the new names that they were given, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. They didn't resist the name change. That was a cultural shift. They didn't resist learning the new language. They didn't resist the education, which was probably out of this world because it exposed them to so many new things and ideas. Um, in addition to what they already knew, and they didn't resist the position that they were assigned. They used all of that to glorify God. They basically take, took whatever they were given, submitted it to the principles of God, and used it so that God would then show forth in that context, in that generation, and be a light in the midst of darkness. What they resisted, though, was defilement, and that was a spiritual concern. And so while most of the culture probably was not problematic, there were some elements of the culture that did run antithetical and against what God had actually set up as his principles in the Torah and they had this written on their heart. What they resisted specifically was the food. Oftentimes people who are vegetarians or vegans will actually cite these passages to talk about the value of, of vegetarian. And absolutely it is a value to, to eat healthy, but, but their principles, they're not, they're not standing on principles basically for health sake. It's actually of spiritual concern for spiritual sake. The term defilement is actually referring to a spiritual matter. And so the particular issue was with the royal rations. They were given the best food according to what the people in Babylon would eat because this was the food that the king would eat. This was served in the royal court. But they had to draw the line here because the Torah and God's law was very clear about prohibitions around what they should and should not eat. And those prohibitions concerned things when it came to meat, like eating clean versus unclean animals. Jews were held to a very strict sort of uh, rule around this. They had strict rules, if you actually look at Leviticus, uh, of looking at how the animals that they would eat should be prepared. They had to be slaughtered in particular ways. That's where the word kosher actually comes from. And they had to be slaughtered in humane ways at that. And would the royal food actually meet those standards? Probably not. Um, but the biggest factor though, if you look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 15, most of the meat often used to eat back in those days in pagan societies was meat that was sacrificed to idols. Obviously, agrarian culture, very important that the rain come, very important that the crops reproduce and the animals reproduce. And so if they're going to kill something anyway in order to eat it, well, let's just make it as a sacrifice to one of these idols and hopefully curry their favor. So a majority of the meat that was prepared in pagan context were actually prepared as a result of a part of a sacrifice to idols, which then made that meat something that Jews could not actually eat, according to the Torah. And these are the factors then as to why these young men made the stand that they did in a, in a quite bold stance, which could not only just, would not only cost them, but could cost the, the, the life in the head of, of the people around them who were responsible for them before the king. Because of their bold stance, 
God actually gave them favor. God actually blessed them. He made it possible that, number one, they, they appeared healthier, but God blessed them in terms of their capabilities and their knowledge, and he made them brighter. The scripture reads 10 times better, brighter than any of the other astrologers, magicians, magicians, those wise type of people within the whole kingdom of the land. They were just better. God had really blessed them in order to really be lights in the midst of that context. So if we were to go on and, and, and project forward, then it helps us to understand then a bit about what comes later in the book of Daniel when, when they make these bold stances, they're making these bold stances not to be oppositional. They're making these bold stances for the sake of spiritual defilement. They are, they've got written on their hearts what they have in the bag. If they've got nothing else that they're taking with them is they've got this award, they've got God with them. They've got awareness of God's principles through the Torah, and this is sort of written internally on them. They practiced those muscles while they were at home when people were turning to idolatry and they didn't turn, and now they get to really practice those muscles and exert that now that they're in an environment that's completely different. So when we understand the fiery furnace, then that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego get thrown into, and why they get thrown into that furnace is because they refuse to bow down to the idol that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. When we understand Daniel in the lion's den, we understand what he refused to do that would actually then go contrary to what he understood about the scriptures and what God has revealed to him. These are the things that they made these decisions to actually stand for God in the midst of a pagan context, even when it brought them into the ire, into the displeasure of the people in power around them. And God still showed up and blessed them as a result of it. But they did it based on God showing forth in their lives. And so keep in mind, while I'm talking about them standing out from the pagan context around them as though they were a light shining amidst darkness, that depends on how you experience that. If you are somebody who is looking and searching for God and you see somebody who actually lives for God and has Jesus showing through them, and that is something that catches you and you crave that and you recognize that, that is a light shining in the darkness. But if you are somebody who you're not open to that and you actually find that to be problematic and you're insulted by that, then, then they stick out like a sore thumb, not a shining light. Uh, because keep in mind, and this is what I think is really helpful for us to understand, they didn't have individualistic societies back then. What that meant was it was collective. When people showed up to make these sacrifices to these pagan gods, the whole town showed up. If the pagan god didn't bring the rain and everybody's still making the sacrifices, but one person decides they're not going to show up and participate in that festival, the whole town is looking at that one person as the reason as to why the god didn't give them the rain. And there's tremendous pressure then, maybe even at, at, for their life's sake, their lives can be on the line. When you then pull away from the pagan worship, because so much depends on it for that community. Their livelihood will depend on it and they will exert all sorts of pressure in order to get everybody participating in it just so that they can appease this so-called God that they depend on for rain or for prosperity or what have you. That is why people have the ire and respond to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the ways that they do. Because now, the, the community then can suffer in their minds because we've got people who are not getting with the program and that's gonna make the gods displeased and that's gonna befall us, that's gonna come down on all of us. The notion 
of living a godly life or a life in Christ was cultivated within these contexts. A life in Christ, a life that is a godly life, absolutely stands out from the pagan society in which it is immersed. That is clear. There were so many, there are hundreds of years and thousands of years of exile for the Jews where they had to somehow figure out how do we still live according to God's principles within a context that's actually designed to absorb us so that we forget these things. But yet and still God somehow allowed them to not be absorbed, but to remain aligned in Jewish with him, even if the practices had to shift and change because they couldn't do the sacrifices, because they couldn't meet for worship, because they were enslaved. But yet and still, God showed up and showed forth in ways in the new context, in the new cultures that still showed him to be God. That is the context out of which God they live in actually emerges so that when we get into the New Testament and we now see non-Jews who are coming to Christ and becoming Christ followers out of pagan societies, one of the first things that they do is they turn away from those gods. They turn away from all that it means to worship those pagan idols, which means now they're no longer participating in 90% of the community events because it's so committed to the pagan gods in the worship. So they're withdrawing from the festivals. They're withdrawing from the temple prostitution and all the sexual orgies that are happening. They're, they're withdrawing from all of those things. And it's very noticeable when Mr. Jenkins is no longer showing up to the events and now there's somebody missing and now things are starting to go left and haywire and we attribute it to, well, what's going on with the Jenkins? They're no longer here. This is why the persecution comes to those who start to then follow Christ in the early church. This is the context. And so while we can be salt and light as Jesus commands us to be, we can also be experienced as the sore thumb and then the persecution comes. These things, the life in Christ, the life in God comes at a cost. So Matthew 5, 14 is very important. We are to be salt and light in the midst of darkness. But what that entails then is we have to be like Daniel and his friends. We have to figure out how do we navigate and understand the culture and the society and the communities of which we are a part, which may change in ways that are antithetical to what we stand for. But how do we take that context, engage it, and still allow God to come forward and show himself in new ways to people in that context who need to see him, who'll never come into a different context where they can experience him some other way. This is God's work that's happening. This is the kingdom work that's being done. And we can see evidence of it all the way back in the Old Testament with what we see in Daniel with his friends. Today's challenge then, I would say, um, you know, I, I know that, you know, me, me as a, me and Patty as parents to, to a teenager, you know, we, we see, <laughs> we see the world and what the world, the messages in the world that come through, you know, the internet and social media and television and believe it or not, kids don't even watch TV anymore. Uh, it's all online and it's the things that they talk about amongst each other. Um, it can, it can be un unnerving. I'll just say it that way, it can be unnerving. Um, and those of you who've raised kids, you know, you've gone through this. And those of you who have grandkids, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you sort of anticipate this world that your grandkids are gonna be raised in um, and how we just don't have the control. And the, so the whole society seems like it's shifting away towards something and more and more things that are just contrary and antithetical to the very principles that, that God would have us to live out. And, and I think those things are absolutely true. But I think what's also true is 
uh, we, we don't actually live in a pagan society. We actually live in a Judeo-Christian influenced society. And, and I think the challenge with that, and the challenge that we've all navigated is in a Judeo-Christian influenced society in which we do live, even if we feel like things are going south quickly, it is actually quite difficult at first glance to tell the difference between the Christian, the nominal Christian, the pagan, the atheist. You just don't know until you have to sort of observe and watch people closely because people aren't participating in temple prostitution and cutting their bodies and mutilating themselves in order to appease God in, in huge festivals together. It doesn't shape life in that way. People may participate in prostitution and orgies undercover, right? but you'll never know it, right? Because it's frowned upon, the society is shaped a certain way. People may not, people may lie, steal, discriminate, oppress, but very few people do it openly because the society is shaped a certain way so that they do it undercover. It's gotta be veiled in a certain way to, to find the acceptance to, con to continue to happen. So, so we live in a context that's actually shaped in such a way where you know, the, the, the common good of a Judean Christian, Christian influence sort of makes things better for a lot of people. But then some of the challenges with that is it can be really difficult and hard to discern between people just where they are spiritually because it all kind of looks similar on the surface. There's good stuff with that, and then there's some, some challenging stuff with that. But where, where the point is where things are going, the society is definitely becoming much more pluralistic, much more a move away from that Judeo-Christian influence in some ways. And, and I would just say what we learned from Daniel, we don't need to be anxious or fret about that. That is the first thing we are typically tended to do because we're old. Right, And that stuff that's coming is not stuff that we're familiar with. And it's nothing that we would want our kids to actually have to navigate or be influenced or affected by it. I understand that. But God is preparing this generation for that generation that is coming for this very context. And God wants this generation to know how to navigate these contexts well so that they can show forth God's principles in that context and become the salt and the light that would be what would attract that, those in that generation to God. Each generation has its own task. When, when scripture talks about um, what, what, is, what, what, are we, what is it like? What is the kingdom of God like? It's like the scribe who, who goes into the treasure and brings out things both new and old, right? The, the, the new because it needs to be fresh wineskins. God has to show up in new ways, but it's old. It, it's, it's that ancient principle that God is still showing forth through each and every generation and each and every context. Both are important but that new has to be engaged in new ways. Our society is always changing. It absolutely is shifting into a way that can make us nervous. But what this next generation, our kids need, is the same thing that we actually need for the road ahead, which is if we look at the bag that we have, we may not feel like we've got all that we want, we may not feel like we even have all that we may truly need, and, and some of that can be true. But if we have God, if we've got Christ in the bag, and if we are in Christ's bag, right? If we are in Christ's hands, we have, I'm not gonna say we have all that we need, but, but, but Christ is more than enough. Christ is more than enough. God's kingdom still unfolds and moves forward. And, and God is able to give a glimpse of his kingdom to a new generation with the hopes that they'll develop a thirst for it. And God will do that through the worst context, 
do the things that we wouldn't wish on our worst enemies. And yet we have to watch our children and our grandchildren move into that very context. Uh, I'll close with this quote from, from another uh, author uh, who's actually from Pasadena. Um, her name is Octavia Butler. And, and she wrote this book called The Parable of the Sower, came out in, in the early 90s. Um, and this quote is, she says, I think we should make emergency packs, grab and run packs in case we need to get out of here in a hurry. I think that's such, uh, such an appropriate uh, statement that she had made in, in what she was talking about in the context of that book. Um, because what she's really talking about is what do we actually need when our context shifts to the negative, shifts into a place that becomes very, very difficult? What is it that we're going to need in order to survive and continue forward in the road ahead? And, and truly, there are a lot of things that we need, but the importance of us being together and rooted uh, as a community in Christ and, and what we can pass along to our loved ones and to our kids, um, that is foundational. It's helpful if they have a bit more than that in terms of just navigating the life that, that, that comes. But even if they don't, even if parents uh, don't have it to give or parents aren't at the place where, where they know to give these things, if you yourself have inherited the prayers of a grandparent, the prayers of a great-grandparent who may not have even known you, but they prayed for you long before you were even born, you have something in your bag for the road ahead. So what's in the bag? What's in your bag and what's in our bag for the road ahead? Not just as individuals, but maybe as a, as a collective, as Joy Christian Center. Whatever it is, let us take heart. Let us not fret. Let us stay anchored in faith because God will find a way as we continue to move forward and, and, and grapple with the context to show himself and express himself in this world that we inherit in this world that we navigate, in this world that is coming that our children will navigate. We, we can hold fast to that. And we have Daniel and his friends to actually sort of thank as an example of how God shows up and how God shows forth in contexts that are quite difficult. With that, um, let me close us in prayer. And, and I think there, I don't know if there's a, a song uh, that we'll close out with. Uh, but let's, we'll, we'll roll with how we need to roll. Father God, I thank you once again, Lord, for wisdom that is old, Lord, but it is so relevant in the new. Lord, help us to stay anchored in you, Lord. Thank you that you've taken a hold of each and every one of us, Lord, in ways, Father God, that we may not even appreciate or know until we get into those contexts, Lord, which may even seem difficult, which may seem the worst context, Lord, but yet he will still find a way to show yourself strong and show yourself forward. Lord, for your glory, help us, Lord, to experience your presence in every situation. Help us to not lose heart. Help us to keep the faith. Lord, and we will be careful to give you the glory, Lord, as we see you draw people to you. Draw those to you, Lord, within the context of Armani, who maybe, Lord, only somebody from Georgia Christian Center might have the opportunity to connect with, Lord. Yes, Lord, there's lots of churches, there's lots of people and lots of saints that you've stationed around, Lord, but there may be someone, Lord, who just needs to hear it come through one of us, Lord, who you may station in their lives, Lord. Help us to be faithful, 
to take advantage of those opportunities that you give us to participate in your kingdom in those ways. We don't have to look for great in terms of number, Lord. We have to look for great in terms of what pleases you, Lord. Help us to be attuned to that. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for your blessing, for your mercies that allow us to be here together with you. In Jesus' name, amen.